Happy Monday, everyone. Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by the Twilio Signal Conference. That's where we're going to be October 17th and the 18th. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. It's Chad. This is another episode of the Mission Daily. And today I'm thrilled to welcome a special guest, Laura Deming. Laura is a venture capitalist at the Longevity Fund, among many other things. And the Longevity Fund is amazing, but I'm not going to keep doing a long introduction. I just want to introduce her and let her tell us about it. Thank you. So I run Longevity VC, and our focus is in the long term, allowing everyone on the planet to live as long as they want to. We try to do that in a number of ways. Probably the most visible is helping to either start or fund companies that are developing drugs for aging. And the goal really is to increase healthy years of life, not just number of years of life. I think the other part of that is access and affordability. So I think there's many therapies that people should be taking to live longer. And we hope to work more on that as well. But kind of our our near-term focus is how can we increase just number of healthy years of human life? That's an exciting idea because I think that everybody unconsciously just gets the bias that it's all a downward progression after a certain age when maybe it doesn't have to be. Not to get too geeky, but... No, you know, please do. Please do. Yeah. Biology was really founded in the science of development. It's obvious to us that animals are programmed to grow from a single cell into a very complex organism. And then we kind of assume that the back end of that is completely unprogrammed. And it's fascinating to me that the first scientist that I ever worked with, you know, Cynthia Canyon at UCSF, her background was in the biology of development and how things came to be. And we're looking at how things come to unbe. I love it. So you mentioned, was that a mentor? Was that just your the first researcher you worked with formally? or? So I have an interesting history with, with Cynthia. You know, when I was growing up, I was in New Zealand as a kid, obsessed with science. My dad would tell me about Michael Faraday and James Clark Maxwell. And when I was eight, I realized that we were all going to to die and specifically that, you know, aging was this disease that affected people that I loved. And I remember going to my computer and Googling or searching at the time, you know, aging science. And there were like two things that came up. And one of them was this professor at UCSF who was working on these tiny worms. C. Eglins roundworms. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, C. elegans for elegans. elegant worm. And they're these really beautiful translucent organisms that are super complex, but also really simple. And, you know, I didn't do anything with that at the moment. But then years later, when I was 11, I had like read a bunch of articles and tried to prepare. And then I wrote her an email saying, you know, hi, my name's Laura Deming. I'm 11 years old, live in New Zealand. Can I come visit your lab? And it was like my first email ever to someone who wasn't a family member. And I never thought she'd write back, but then um, I got an email back, I think the same day that said, yeah, sure, you know, c- come over. <laughs> and so That's incredible. I remember I ran to my dad's bedroom and I was pummeling like the ground <laughs> and he, was, he walks in, he's like, what's up? And I was like, I think my life's changed. Like, I think, I think everything's different now. And so, but then the, my next thought was, wow, like I live in New Zealand and she's in California. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> Luckily, we had a cousin who was getting married in Half Moon Bay. Oh, perfect. And so, you know, a couple months later, I came over for that and I went to visit her lab. And I remember walking in and, you know, labs, we picture them in movies as these very clean, sterile environments, but they're actually just total chaos, dirty, like, you know, sort of like things strewn everywhere because you're doing science, can't keep things pristine. Her lab wasn't terrible, of course. But I remember walking out that day, awestruck. I, that's the place that I have to go be. And I went home that night and I wrote her an email and said, 
if there's anything that I can do, like I will scrub floors, I will label things, I will buy groceries, I would love to come work in your lab. You know, she wrote back and she's like, yeah, sure, sounds good. And so then I was like, okay, well, you know, I still live in New Zealand. How do I get over and, and make this happen? Sure. And eventually that kind of worked out. But, you know, I think the one thing I'll say is, you know, Cynthia Kenyon changed my life. She's the most extraordinary person I've ever met. If it weren't for her, I would never be where I am today. If I hadn't gotten that reply to that email when I was 11, what would have happened with my life? And it could have been totally different. Let's go back to that for a moment. So not many <laughs> people are firing off emails to people that they see online. And sometimes there's a hesitancy because we think that person, why would they take the time? Should they talk to us? Yep. There's that whole type of negative thought process that starts. Did Was any of that present? Or were you? did you just see the work and did you instantly email her? Did you think about it for a couple of days? What was that like? So I think I was super lucky in that, you know, my dad is just an incredible, incredible person. Like when we were kids, he would tell us about scientists all the time. And one story that he would always tell was of Michael Faraday, this young bookbinder's assistant, who when he was a teenager, wasn't able to afford, you know, school, but he was obsessed with science. And he would read every science book that he was supposed to bind. And he went to a famous chemist's lecture and wrote down every lecture that chemist spoke. And then at the end of the lecture, he went up cold and presented this book of notes to the chemist and said, Mr. Davey, I've compiled these notes and I just love to work with you. And that story, I mean, I think if my dad hadn't told me that, maybe I wouldn't have thought of it, but that story really stuck with me. And so I think just having that kind of ping was super helpful. That's yeah, a great, great story. So you're at the lab. Were you doing research at first or were you doing, were you, did you have to scrub some clothes? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, so I, I think people don't realize how to think of it. She is absolutely incredible. Like I walked in, I was like 12, so shy, couldn't talk to anybody without looking at the floor. And she would each, you know, week or kind of couple of weeks just chat with me about experiments as though I were a graduate student. I mean, we'd go into her office and she'd tell me about heterozygous mutations and kind of, <laughs> you know, what it meant to have DAF2 RNAi as opposed to just a DAF2 mutant. We ended up designing this experiment, and you know, really it was like mostly her, pretty much all her, which was trying to make the longest lived worm ever. And so that would be combining what's called a DAF2 mutation, which increases a worm's lifespan with, you know, caloric restriction, which is the decrease in kind of eating sort of food. Also some reproductive system interventions. And we ended up making a worm that lived seven times longer than a normal worm lifespan. You mentioned some of the innovations, I guess, that allowed this worm to live longer. How do those map to drugs for humans? Is there a leap? Is there any like segue? I think in general, there are like 90 different things that make mice live longer. And some of those are changing genes and some of those are giving them drugs. And the thing that's interesting about the work that we were focused on then, which is this kind of DAF2 pathway, is that it actually relates to diabetes in human. So if you have mutants in that pathway, in a couple different ways, you either get kind of dwarfs or sort of you affect like the insulin signaling, which is core diabetes. One thing we've seen is drugs like metformin, which are for diabetes, be discovered to possibly have longevity benefits, you know, definitely in mice, possibly in humans. But then also if you look at kind of dwarves and the rate of age-related disease, it's actually quite attenuated at later life. And so there's no on-market therapeutic you can point to to say that's an aging drug. But this kind of biology, which was discovered in kind of like worms that have like thousands of cells, has translated surprisingly well to kind of the human context. You're doing this research. Did you start expanding your search outside the lab at this point? Did you do any networking? Did you? What were you doing when you <laughs> had off time? I mean, I think at that time, when I had off time, I was reading comic books or H.L. Mencken, <laughs> sort of, you know, 
sort of, sort of stories. All right, one second. We got favorite comic books. Uh, favorite comic books. No, that'd be way too embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. I could never on. say. No, no, no. Any, I, any ones that you would want to share? So I was a big, like, I had a ton of comic books, Uncanny X-Men, and they were the staples, but I also went off the beaten path in a couple of different ways. Were you comic books and graphic novels, or were you like, um, one or the other? Gosh, I mean, I think some of them are really geeky, like Logic Comics, for example, which I, I that's a more recent one that I've been reading lately. It's actually about Bertrand Russell and kind okay. of like his original <laughs> logical journey. But yeah, when I was a kid, you know, I was just, you know, you just dream a lot. And I think one of the cool things about growing up in New Zealand is, and when I grew up there, I never actually went to school. I was in our house all day just dreaming. There were just no restrictions. And I think I read a lot of comic books and The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. I love that series. It's yeah. so good. And I remember like you just kind of imagine like, oh, I could actually be that person. I could go and you know conquer the world. And I think it's kind of interesting. Like if I had gone to school, I don't think I have anything against school, but I think I would have a very different perspective. Like I would have much more context for what's expected or feasible. And kind of growing up outside of that was just, it kind of opens your mind a little bit. You just think you can do anything, like quite literally. I completely agree. So how is fiction really, it sounds like fiction has shaped your worldview a lot. Any other fictional books that you think about or that come to mind that really opened up Oh, interesting. things for you? Gosh, so many. I mean, I, I think some of them are quite personal. Like one, I think that is maybe specific to me would be reading Notes from the Underground in college. That was extremely influential. Dostoevsky talking about this man whose liver hurts and all the mental tropes that we fall into and, and the extremes of that. I think that was a very fascinating book. I think actually more recently, I've loved Theodore Dreiser's Sister Carrie and just the story of somebody trying to make it in the world and like encountering all these different aspects of life. I love Vladimir Nabokov. I think that the way that he writes fiction is just incomparable. Like even if you're writing about like a table just kind of sitting there, you'd, you'd want to read it. I think, you know, most of all, and this is somewhat embarrassing, P.G. Woodhouse, who wrote the Jeeves and Wooster series, Every time you're feeling down, every time you're having a bad day, you just go read like five paragraphs of Jeeves being Jeeves and you're just extremely excited. I love it. So are you primarily books or if you have the time, do you watch TV at all? Will you binge watch a TV series or has nothing really caught your attention lately? Um, so I think lately I've tried to kind of stick primarily to books. And I think the past year has been uh, mostly the classics, kind of starting out with you know Herodotus and Thucydides mm -hmm. and kind of like moving up. The thing that's been nice about that is it, I think it gives you a differentiated background coming into each day, right? If you've been spending the past hour learning about the Athenians and kind of <laughs> what a jerk Alcibiades was, you really don't walk into a meeting being like, wow. How, like how does this impact things on like millennia time scales? And so I think that's been quite fascinating. And just how similar we are, right? Like if you go back and you read Plato, you know, like the Republic is it's really not all about these deep philosophical, I mean, in, you know, in many ways it is, but you know, he's also like, eugenics is great, or here's how we should banish poets. You know, like those are very specific idiosyncratic things that aren't actually very logical and like may not actually be, you know, meant by the author. But it, they're just kind of funny relatable, specific things that are very different from what you expect from like the austere philosophers of old, right? They're kind of very, very biased, very human, very flawed, very grounded in the ideology of their times. And you wonder reading that, how much are the things I think today similarly flawed, kind of grounded? How will people look back and read sure. our republics and just be very confused by how we could ever think these things? So it sounds like you put a lot of thought into the reading material that you select. Are there any type of heuristics or decision-making or mental models that you put into selecting things? I think the biggest life hack that I've encountered is just being incredibly, incredibly thoughtful about what 
stimuli like enter the brain. So I think one fascinating thing right is in biology, we always consider drugs to be like the major kind of way in which impact behavior or health, right? The like small molecules or biologics that you take are the way to change how you are. But if you think about it, our eyes are recording enormous amounts of information every second. And so are our ears. That information can impact our behavior. You know, like if someone tells you to go on a diet and you go on the diet, the kind of sort of verbal stimulus was actually the thing that compels you. Like it was the actual treatment that induced the improvement in health. And so I think being extremely thoughtful about what things you you kind of you know allow yourself to be influenced by in that way can really change behavior. So one example would be trying to read long form content, trying to select your authors very carefully, you know, being open enough to find great authors, but then trying to, I think, stick through books that might be longer than you might like. And one of the most, I think, compelling things for me really had been randomly having a friend recommend Thucydides. Like I would never have thought to sit down and learn about the 27 years war, but then it taught me so much about how to think strategically sure. and, and different things that I was like, well, what other authors are there that we just kind of don't think to encounter on an everyday basis, but are actually quite valuable. Do you take recommendations from friends a lot sometimes, or do you ask for recommendations or? Well, I think there's kind of like this cool thing, which is there are like the just the best books in history that kind of everyone talks about. They've survived literally millennia of like recommendation kind of sorting. And so I think those are a good basis. Definitely. So is that inspired by the Lindy effect or did you find the Lindy effect after? Uh, oh, sorry, uh, what is the Lindy effect? So the Lindy effect is basically if something has lasted 100 years, there's a very good chance that it will last oh. another 100. Oh, interesting. So age contains baked in wisdom. And just because something has lasted a long time, there's a chance that we don't even appreciate why it has lasted that. So uh, there's, there might be wisdom way underneath the surface of why it's surviving. That's fine. Oh, shoot. That might actually be a confounder in the sense of like, maybe if it survives 100 years, it's just sort of like, well, everyone's convinced that it will survive the next 100 years, so they all read it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not really sure. I think to some extent also it's sort of like reading a book can be seen as a way not just to get new information, but also just to understand how somebody else thinks about the world, right? I think if you read Gibbons, you're learning about the Roman Empire, but you're also to some extent learning about Gibbons, right? Like his chapter on Christianity is fascinating. Yeah. He, he has this very specific perspective. And I think it's so interesting too, to study the founding of big movements before they were co-opted or spread around the world, because what things were in the beginning often doesn't resemble anything oh. like they are now. So I think that's such a good point, right? You know, we have these like statements to ourselves about what countries looked like at certain times, right. but then you watch the Roman Empire and like, I think one of the most fascinating contradictions I found, you know, sort of in the last couple months of reading has been Marcus Aurelius cited as this incredible Stoic. And Stoicism was, you know, when I was a kid, the thing that I was taught and that was the most helpful philosophy in the world. But then at the same time, you read history and you realize his wife cheated on him abundantly and he was unaware or denied it, worshipped her. His son was one of the worst emperors in history. Just a very interesting paradox where like the person who created some of the most impactful philosophical memes actually at the same time also had these contradictions that maybe you don't want to actually have in your own personal life. And like, how do you dissociate those two? Do you think that that type of psychological pain is necessary to create great philosophies and systems, i.e. he was going through it in his own life and he was essentially developing this philosophy to counter the, maybe the things he didn't want to face or... One of the more interesting things a friend has said to me in the past couple of weeks has been like he read Mark Julius and was, and was just like, wow, this guy's very depressed. Yeah. And that was his major takeaway. And I think that made a lot of things to me make more sense about why he would say certain things or kind of lay out the philosophy. And maybe that's the case. You kind of have to be pushed to extremes to discover the principles that work well, but then perhaps you can apply those in non-extreme settings and not get kind of all the negative effects that you know accompany, sure. in his case, the, the positives. Sure. So 
this is my knowledge of biology is pretty limited. I'm trying to expand this, but biological organisms and complex systems typically thrive at the edge of chaos, at least in the edge of chaos. That's where we have a chance for new types of behavior or maybe epigenetic change to happen. How do you see that in, in your own life when you push yourself outside of your comfort zones? If you have any, uh, do, you, do you try <laughs> to push yourself consciously to the edge of chaos in um, terms of what you can do? Or how do you think about that? Yeah. So if I have a chance to be geeky again for just like five please, seconds, which please, I apologize please. for. So I think there's actually two ways of thinking about evolution. One is the kind of negative kind of chaotic way like oh you know sure, like there's sure. a lot of competition and death that's what's driving things the other is actually different which is there's a source of energy to be tapped that's possible and like you have to find ways to cooperate or kind of evolve yourself more, to achieve the it most symbiotic survive the, exactly yeah. there's actually a fascinating sort of set of research that kind of talks about how thermodynamically it's the most likely outcome in some sense for a system to evolve to take advantage of all the energy that's available to it and so i think for my own life it would be a little bit less kind of like well i'm really pushed to kind of experience all this great aggravation and pain and that's what's driving things a little bit more kind of like when you see those beautiful hints of curiosity or opportunity that you want to really go after. And I think one of the fun things about venture capital is you spend a lot of time looking for those moments where just something comes up and it's just so beautiful, right? Like there's a beautiful scientific story or some two things come together that you didn't quite see and then someone points them out and your brain goes on fire. And there's I think- There's Plato that said like the good, the true, and the beautiful. Those are like the three-tiered platonic canon to follow. That Exactly. Yeah. 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 But you, you do feel that kind of just ultimate energy of that idea has so much potential and it needs to be exploited and as quickly as possible. Sure. I think academics and scientists can feel this as well, right? You know, it's not necessarily kind of economic exploitation. It can be they find some beautiful concept and kind of just the potential hidden there is the thing that will drive you for years to go and run something down. That feeling of unlocked potential and ideas where you just see the glimmer of something and you just are so excited by what's going to look like when it really folds out. I love it. So it sounds like that might be something that led you to venture capital and investing. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got started there? Yeah, so it's somewhat of a um, sort of wide trajectory in that I, I spent two years with Cynthia, went to MIT for two years because I, at that time, really believed that I wanted to work as a scientist in longevity. And so I worked with Lenin Garente, sort of with a scientist in his lab on bone aging and with a couple of the folks there. And then, you know, two years in, I think I really just felt confused because we were working in the lab on technology that was breakthrough. Naive 16-year-old self really felt like it was going to change the world. And just there was nobody like coming by to ask about it. And sort of like, well, how does this get turned into a drug? How would that even happen? Nobody knows what we're doing. So obviously there's like an information gap. And I remember chatting with VCs and they just summarily dismissed the field of longevity, which I don't blame them for. I mean, I think if you're very busy, you don't have time to keep up with everything. But it was like an eye-opening, oh, okay, well, like these guys don't have the market fully covered. There's definitely niche opportunities that are like too early for them to understand. I can't just trust that this technology will go forward. And so I ended up moving to the Bay Area and starting a venture capital fund at the ripe age of, I think, 16, maybe 17, actually, by the time I actually got out here and raising capital for that. And it was incredibly hard. I mean, it took two years to raise $4 million. Because you can imagine, you know, somebody walks in, they've never raised capital before or invested in it. They have maybe four years of undergrad level experience in a lab. And they're kind of talking about aging. And you're kind of like, that's not <laughs> the most investable criteria. And would you mind sharing some of the early conversations with LPs? Oh, and how, gosh. Uh, but also share <laughs> how much things have changed now that you're on to, I think, fun too. Yeah, exactly. So I think you know, there are a few things. One is which is I, I didn't realize how well-intentioned people were, right? Like, you know, because I got like literally for two years straight negative feedback, every conversation. I and mean, it was really, really hard to keep going. And one of the things was people, you know, in retrospect, I was really grateful for them because people would actually give help and advice. They'd be like, well, this doesn't work, but for this reason. And it was actually quite helpful because I think my ideas when I started out were very unfounded. Like I hadn't done the market research that was required to really understand the space. 
I try to think back to some conversations. I mean, I think people were just very confused about the potential and the reality of it. Mm -hmm. And what really changed was we ended up finding a company that was just so exciting. Like what they were working on was obviously breakthrough. And at this point, you had the vision and all the expertise. And at this from point, I've been talking to people it. for a long time. Exactly. Yeah. And I remember I was just kind of randomly talking to a sort of mentor one day, and I showed him some of the research this company was working on, and he asked to invest. And we've been like he'd been my mentor for years at that point. And, but I realized it was that moment where I realized I knew that the science was real because I had been working on it for four years at the lab. But, you know, the folks that I was chatting with had no way to have that visceral sense of progress. All they had was like a hypothetical sense that aging was something bad. And so I changed my pitch from like reeling against the kind of injuries and, you know, insults of age to just giving a bunch of examples of recent figures that were really exciting in the science and that resulted in just an insanely high conversion rate where there hadn't been previously. So you do fund one. When were you able to close it? And when did you start thinking about fund two? And was there any point where you thought you might not do venture capital? Or were you, when after fund one got rolling, were you like, this is for me, I'm going to keep doing it? Exactly. So we did what fund one and then sort of invested in a slew of companies. And I think, you know, one of the big learnings there was just trying to iterate to find where we could have the biggest impact. Because, you know, past a certain point, if you're a company and you've cured, say, Alzheimer's in patients, you're not going to have a trouble sort of financing, you know, past, you know, <laughs> if you're actually, you know, viscerally, like, obviously curing. And so you know, the question is, well, where can we deploy capital to make sure it's profitable for investors, but also to make sure that we're having an impact? Because, you know, just being a venture capitalist is not something that I would find compelling in of itself. And so I think the fascinating thing for us has been just kind of moving earlier and earlier seems to be important. So for example, this year, we just launched our accelerator, Age One, and that is focused on helping people start companies for the first time, because really that's, you know, in our first portfolio where we saw the most impact and kind of right. the most risk, but also the most reward scientifically. And it's really rewarding, you know, multiple companies from our first fund now have drugs that are being tested in patients. That's incredible. And so people's lives are being impacted by these technologies. And I think the only thing, you know, once you have a positive feedback loop, you know, people always talk about mental hacks. As a venture capitalist in biotech, the biggest mental hack is when you like know that a patient has been dosed with a drug that you might have helped marginally contribute to like getting to that stage. And so now we're just doubling down on like, we really want as soon as possible to get at least one patient, have an obvious health benefit from longevity therapeutic. And that's like absolutely our number one goal at this moment. That's impact. That's very, very exciting. So when you're doing this and as you're investing in companies, is there a particular founder success story or a story of one of your portfolios that you're especially proud of? I know it's hard for VCs to, uh, to pick. <laughs> I'm not asking you to pick favorites, but if any story comes to mind and feel free to anonymize the name oh, of, the, of the person if, if you don't want to share that. I mean, I, I think the hard thing about that question is obviously there are many like small anecdotes, but I think the most impressive things about founders often aren't any one specific day or any one specific week. And maybe just uh, treat that question as, is there an amalgamation of like similar <laughs> similar traits right. and just combine all the stories maybe? The thing that is most inspiring though, if I were just to, you know, say stack ranked, what, what stands out is just the people who over years of just really hard stuff, right? We're like, we have some companies in our portfolio that are doing very well now, but where, you know, for many, many years before that, the founders were in a windowless room by themselves, maybe two or three people. And like, there was just no good stimulus coming in. There was no positive feedback and they just kept going and did not give up. And, you know, and we were like talking to them and we were like, you guys are doing really well, but it's just such a slog to get to that first point where you get that next round of funding or you get the next partnership. 
you know, I probably could search my mind for a bunch of anecdotes, but just, you know, the, the most compelling thing really is just watching a founder for years stick it out. And that inspires me, I think, personally to try also in our fund, do things that are ambitious and hard and take years to pay off, but where you've seen somebody else just kind of take it all the way. And that's just so inspiring. Agreed. So Laura, this has been so fun. We have one final question here. If there is anything that you would say to everyone who's listening, who is maybe on the fence, maybe they're thinking, okay, maybe aging is a disease. Maybe this is something we should fight. (laughs) Is there anything that you would want to leave listeners with? Well, I wish this were a slideshow because then I could show a picture that might like, you know, sort of (laughs) influence you. I'd sort of learned. But I think it would really be how recent the science is. Because I think that if, if we were speaking 500 years ago or even 100 years ago, I would be in kind of charlatan mode where I had to tell you that this were a feasible field of study. But, you know, really, it's like the past 20, 30 years you've ever, you know, for the first time had evidence of, you know, the programs of aging being discovered, had the ability to engineer systems in a way that would actually allow you to impact some of these things. The thing I I wouldn't say is that we have, you know, certainty or knowledge that we can reverse the course of aging in humans, like in the next 50 years. I think that that's an open question in terms of feasibility and funding. But I think I would just ask somebody who had that question to go look at the data and the science of the last 20, 30 years and really try and understand the progress there. Because I think it's one of the most fascinating areas of biology. And it's wonderful to work in, in part because it's such a recent kind of phenomenon. I love it. So Laura, where can people find more about you online and your work? Um, Yeah, exactly. So they can find more at LW.com. We've also recently started working with a program called Pioneer. So if you're interested in kind of like getting grad income, Uh, San Francisco, uh, that's another thing as well. And that's just pioneer.app. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Laura. This was a blast. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Mission Daily. If you enjoyed it, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And as always, a big shout out to our sponsor, Twilio. Twilio is amazing. They power a number of world-class apps. So everyone from Coca-Cola, Airbnb, Intuit, Trulia, Nordstrom, Red Cross, EMC Square, Dell, VMware, they all use Twilio for one reason. Their software is great. Their infrastructure is awesome. And the Twilio Signal Conference is a place where all of that comes together with a wonderful community. We're going to be there October 17th and the 18th in San Francisco. Use the code MISSION20. When you do, you'll get 20% off your ticket and you might even get to see us there. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.